I'm Don Tapscott. And I'm Alex Tapscott. And this is What's on Tap. Alex, another crazy week. Um, first of all, there have been a lot of uh, developments and statements that speak to the sort of bifurcation of attitudes towards blockchain, crypto, and digital assets. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, you've got, uh, well, Franklin uh, uh, Templeton CEO, Jenny Johnson, uh, that fund manages $1.5 trillion in assets. And uh, she made a statement uh, this week saying that blockchain technology will be hugely disruptive, uh, eventually allowing everyday people to place small investments and in otherwise uh, inaccessible assets like major real estate. She says that tokenization and blockchain are going to be highly disruptive to the financial services industry. And we're at the very, very early stages of that. She says, I'm not sure uh, folks completely understand how disruptive this will be. Um, it's something I'm spending a lot of time on. And my team is spending a lot of time on just trying to think about and understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then on the other hand, you've got these people, I mean, now, it goes back a couple of years, but Warren Buffett described Bitcoin as rat poison. And uh, there was a survey that was recently uh, reported um, by JP Morgan that said that one third of mainstream investment firms agree with uh, Buffett's uh, characterization. So that's this sort of uh, 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 schizoid view really of all of this stuff. And of course, JP Morgan has been investing lots in this as has Fidelity. And I guess another sort of uh, um, news related to this, uh, Fidelity Assets um, this week uh, uh, conducted a big study and it found that 71% of institutional investors surveyed plan to invest in digital assets. So um, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something going on here and you don't know what it is. I mean, cognitive dissonance, either this is the biggest thing ever or it's rat poison. What do you, what do you, do you, what do you think? Um, I think that it's probably not a bifurcation, but a trifurcation. Is that a word? I don't know. Um, so there are the people who are intellectually lazy and are not interested in learning about Bitcoin and blockchain and this whole world of digital assets. And for them, I say, I'm sorry, but like, you're not going to make it. Um, there's a second group that says, well, blockchain is really interesting, but Bitcoin and crypto you know, are not so interesting and they're too volatile or they're too early stage or what have you. And then there's a third group that say, well, blockchain is the technology that supports digital assets, crypto assets, and it's in the universe of crypto assets where most of the innovation is actually happening today. And I think that it's that latter group that has really got it right. I think if you look at Bitcoin, you say it's too volatile and, you know, therefore crypto is not worth paying attention to. Um, you're really missing what's going on. It's true that Bitcoin is volatile. Um, so are lots of other assets. And therefore, maybe you shouldn't put 100% of your portfolio in one single asset. But it doesn't mean that the underlying technology or the ecosystem that's being built around that um, isn't... Um, worth paying attention to or isn't, you know, hugely important to the future. And Fidelity Digital Assets, you know, is a company in the traditional world of financial services. Well, Fidelity is the company, the digital assets um, subsidiary separate entity is where a lot of that innovation is happening. You know, they just brought on like 200 new people to that organization. And they've done a lot of great research. Um, 
into you know investor attitudes and it's not surprising at nine point partners where i work we talk to investors all the time who are really um keen to understand what this um asset class is how this technology works and so forth so um that helps to sort of validate our thesis and you know in the end if you want to understand what's going to happen in the future you follow the money right you don't listen to media pundits you look how leaders of today are actually allocating capital and what we saw just yesterday was um, ftx which is one of the largest crypto asset exchanges in the world along with coinbase binance um you know and a couple of others and probably the fastest growing and the one that's considered the most innovative um just announced that they closed a 900 million dollar financing and an 18 billion dollar valuation and um probably that valuation um, doesn't actually reflect the amount of money that they make or how quickly that they're growing. Um, but if you look at the types of investors, we've got Sequoia Capital, SoftBank, Third Point, uh, Coinbase Ventures are in there, the Paul Tudor Jones family, Alan Howard, Vanek, Circle, and a bunch of others. So two thirds of the names I just mentioned are what would be considered traditional financial services companies or individuals. And if you look at even the Coinbase financings from years ago, the initial rounds were led by the New York Stock Exchange and other traditional kinds of entities. So, you know, there's a lot of media punditry, which misses the point, I think, um, and that everyone should understand that blockchain is something that's affecting many industries. But in the world of financial services, it's the ability to create digital assets, crypto assets, that is leading to most of the innovation. And that's where a lot of the smart money is going today. Yeah. You know, while you were speaking, I, I remembered a slide I created a while ago and I just dug it up here. I'm not gonna stick it on the screen, but I'll read a couple of things, but it, it's essentially addressing the issue of leaders of old paradigms have great difficulty in, uh, in understanding the new. And, uh, you know, it's the problem of paradigms that these things cause disruption and, and uh, they're often received with coolness or worse, mockery, hostility. But uh, just get a, a few of these. Uh, Steve Ballmer, CEO of Microsoft, 2007. Boy, what a leader he was. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. Um, I'm old enough to remember in 1997 when Ken Olson, who was the CEO of Digital Equipment Corporation, but a lot of people here never heard of that name. It was the biggest computer company in the world. It was neck and neck with IBM. He says, there's no reason for an individual to have a computer in his home. <laughs> um, he said that in 97? No, sorry, I'd say 97, 77. Oh, okay. Nine, nine, <laughs> he would be very out of touch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 97. Uh, 1977. Time Magazine, well, they've had a few beauties over the year. Remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop. Um, <laughs> the uh, New York Times, a rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Um, here's a guy from CEO of Century Fox in 1946. Television won't be able to hold any market it captures after the first six months. I mean, it goes on and on. CEO yeah. of Union. The telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. I'll just do one more. Democracy will be dead by 1950. Actually, that the, uh, the, was an author, Short History of the Future. He may 
have been wrong about the date, but he may be right about the concept, just given what a mess uh, democracy is in the world right now, and particularly the United States. We have a total crisis of legitimacy. Anyway, I think that, that this is happening, but your advice is good. I mean, follow the money, really. What are people actually doing rather than all, all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, maybe uh, leaders of the old paradigm have learned some lessons from uh, previous paradigm shifts. <laughs> um, you know, people who are in, in leadership roles at a lot of firms today were around in the 90s when the internet bankrupted a number of legacy businesses like Blockbuster, Yellow Pages, right? So maybe they can see that there's the potential for that to occur. It's just been so um, rare for that to happen in financial services. Most of the times that financial services um, companies go bankrupt, it's a self-inflicted wound of some kind. Um, you know, they take on, they incur too much risk or there's bad leadership and the company fails as a result of that. Um, but this time the shock to the industry is exogenous. <laughs> it's coming from uh, beyond, from, uh, beyond their walls. And that's something that I think banks haven't really ever had to contend with, you know, disruption to financial services is something that, you know, the last time that happened was probably in the 17th century with the invention of the joint stock corporation, right? So it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I think that they're still paying attention to. By the way, nice uh, try uh, coining the neologism uh, trifurcation. I just Googled it and apparently uh, some other people have already said it though. So. Yeah. Anyway, it's a good term. I think I'll start using it myself. <laughs> okay, let's move along here. So there's been lots of criticism that stable coins are opaque about what kind of reserves there are backing their coins. And this week in uh, response, Circle published a breakdown of its uh, stable coin uh, assets, reserve assets. And um, they've you know, been a real leader in, the, in this uh, space. Any comments on that? Yeah, I think Circle's been trying to provide, to create more legitimacy, um, not legitimacy, but to really take stable coins into the mainstream and to get major financial institutions and others really comfortable. And they've been really successful. In fact, yesterday, MasterCard just announced that they're going to be using Circle and USDC in their major stablecoin pilots. So uh, USDC, which is Circle Stablecoin, is being integrated into one of the largest uh, payment networks in the world. Um, one of the concerns about stablecoins is what's behind them. Now, there are different kinds of stablecoins. Some of them are decentralized. And uh, the biggest example of that is DAI, D-A-I, which is created by the maker DAI um, protocol. And basically, it's over collateralized with crypto assets. So for every dollar of DAI, there's at least a dollar, but usually more of Ether and other um, digital assets. And that um, decentralized stablecoin has been through various cycles. Um, of price volatility and has always more or less held its peg. And so I think a lot of people have confidence in it. Uh, but it's still relatively small compared to the whole stablecoin ecosystem. It's around $6.5 billion um, of total uh, volume, or excuse me, total value. Uh, whereas the entire stablecoin ecosystem is $110 billion. So where's the rest of that coming from? The rest of that is coming from centralized stablecoins like Circle, like uh, USDC. So basically, USDC is a digital asset that tracks the price of a dollar, US dollar, and it's backed by 
um, hard assets. So Circle announced um, a couple of days ago what's actually backing the Circle USDC stablecoin. And it turns out 61% um, is backed by cash and cash equivalents. 13% 13 is backed by US dollar certificates of deposits at banks. 12% is treasuries, 9% is commercial paper, and 5% are municipal and corporate bonds. So in other words, about 95%, um, or I should say about 85% of that is what would be called cash or risk-free assets. So that's a good thing. 9% uh, commercial paper, generally speaking, pretty safe, and 5% municipal and corporate bonds, um, generally pretty safe. Though it's interesting that it's not 100% cash backing a dollar stablecoin. Um, there's some other assets. So maybe Circle is trying to earn a yield on some of the assets that underpin the, that underpin the stablecoin as a source of additional revenue. And it would be sizable if you think about it. Um, at uh, $15 billion of Circle of USDC in circulation, you know, even if they're making one and a half percent, that's 25 million US dollars of basically profit, right, to the firm. So um, I think that what the step they've taken is one that others in this area are going to take. And I think either they're going to do it voluntarily, like Circle did it, or they're going to be compelled. And we've seen recently uh, Janet Yellen <clears throat> at the Federal Reserve and other regulators um, raise this issue that stable coins, as they become bigger and more systemically important to the financial industry, ought to be um, regulated more, um, if not more stringently, then they need to provide more uh, transparency about what's backing them. And I think brought, by and large, that's a good thing. And you know, the CEO of Circle, Jeremy Allaire, would, would, welcome, would certainly welcome that, as would other some others <laughs> in the space as well. Um, so you have to remember, like $110 billion of dollar value is a very significant market. Um, and uh, is something that you know is becoming important. So I think this kind of uh, attestation or or transparency is is a really helpful step in the right direction. So in the in the big picture, all the different types of currencies and more broadly digital assets. You know, you've got the community based currencies. We have um, securities, of course. There are uh, natural asset uh, tokens. There are central bank uh, digital currencies many of as you and i have discussed how do you view stable coins as kind of fitting into this uh, constellation of, of new forms of assets yeah well i think they're one of the most important um of that taxonomy that you just described right there's um sort of forms of digital money like bitcoin you know which are designed to be a medium of exchange and store value and a unit of account um you know, I think that, that that would be sort of like money in the old school sense, like gold. But then you've got stable coins, which are really more just like dollars. They just happen to be digital um, facsimiles of dollars. And what's interesting about centralized stable coins is they sort of bridge the gap between centralized finance and decentralized finance. I mean, you know, it's, you can't say that this is a truly digital native thing if all of the money is sitting in treasuries <laughs> inside of a bank somewhere, right? I mean, in the end, there's still a, a, a very firm foot in the world of traditional financial services. And I, I think that's okay. And in fact, I think that it's a really interesting um, sort of example of how existing financial firms should be thinking about this asset class, that you know they are uh, perfectly situated to be creating products and services like these centralized stable coins because they have the 
the regulatory moat. They have the licenses, they have the capital, they have the balance sheet, they've got expertise. Um, and I think that with a spark of innovation, they could really um, you know, build out businesses like this. You know, there are other kinds of businesses that have one foot in the world of traditional finance and one in the world of decentralized finance. Crypto asset custody is another one. You know, if you believe like I do that, uh, not only Bitcoin and other crypto assets, but every financial asset will basically be a digital bearer instrument that people trade peer to peer. We don't need all these different intermediaries. Then storing and custodying those assets is going to be very important. And for regulatory security operating reasons, a lot of firms need or would prefer for a third party to hold that on their behalf, right? So boom, there's a multi-trillion dollar kind of market for banks that um, that didn't exist just a couple of years ago. So these are the kinds of things that I think you can glean lessons if you're coming at it from the world of traditional finance. Um, and a reminder too that, you know, blockchain pilots and so forth are, are good, but there's a, there's a big multi-billion dollar market that's being built adjacent to the traditional financial industry and you need to like learn about that otherwise it's going to eat you at some point in the future but so we've talked a lot about financial services and i'm i must admit that i'm sort of obsessed with this right now it's where i started my career and what i do you know kind of every day but there is more to blockchain than financial services and um you've talked a lot about where blockchain fits in the context of other emerging technologies and how that could affect different areas of the economy and even different elements of, of uh, life, government, so forth. So um, you hosted a really interesting webinar on that point, um, The Battlefield of Things, which is about the trivergence, as you've described it. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about that discussion? Yeah, well, uh, I found myself hosting this webinar today uh, with a couple of uh, um, rock star uh, former military guys in this area. And, you know, honestly, I'm sort of a bit of the view. Uh, you remember the Edwin Starr song, War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely nothing. But it turns out that, um, you know, war has always been around. It looks like it's going to be around for the next period. Incidentally, um, I just read a book um, uh, that uh, was uh, by a guy named... Um, uh, Graham Allison. It's called Destined for War. And he argues that China and the United States are headed for a war that neither wants, but that this always happens. He calls it the, uh, or the reason is the Thucydides trap, which is this uh, pattern of structural stress that results when a rising power challenges a ruling one. Of course, China is now challenging the United States and it looks like is destined to become the dominant uh, power in the world. So um, hopefully that can be avoided. But um, given that, um, there's some big changes. There's a demand pull for new ways of thinking about combat, but also about thinking of, about security. I mean, during the pandemic, we've had a cyber attack pandemic. You know, we've got infrastructure attacks, shutting down all kinds of stuff, including pipelines. Um, two weeks ago, one of the biggest ransomware attacks happened ever, the hack of the software company, uh, Casia, and that allowed, um, you know, one ransomware group to infect more than 1,500 organizations. And, uh, you know, th this is coming, there are big geopolitical implications from this coming from Russia and former Soviet bloc uh, uh, companies. And, and in fact, a couple of days ago, uh, the White House and other allies accused China of uh, teaming up with 
criminal gangs to commit widespread uh, cyber attacks, including the one on Microsoft that affected thousands of organizations. So all of this is creating, you know, a demand pull for a new way of thinking about security and defense as, as we're now in the digital age. You know, it's not about um, so much about fighting for land. Uh, it's fighting for and fighting with data, the new asset class of the digital age. And then on the other hand, you got this technology push from these new uh, technologies, the trivergence, as we've called it, the 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 uh, convergence of blockchain, of the Internet of Things, and of uh, AI. And uh, these are creating threats, but they're also creating uh, new opportunities for a more secure world. And um, it was quite an extraordinary uh, conversation that we had. It was a... Uh, uh, Jim Reganor, who's a who's a uh, longtime um, a collaborator of the BRI, he's a former uh, pilot and and has been uh, he's a colonel actually the Air Force, and he's been deeply involved in thinking about blockchain um, in the in uh, since he left the military in the private sector. And we also had Brigadier General Blaine Holt, um, who was actually the uh, the n- number two uh, representative. Uh, for the U.S. at NATO, and among other things, has uh, been out in the battlefield and so on. These guys held this quite extraordinary uh, kind of conversation, where you know they call it the the uh, the battlefield of things. It's sort of you could call it the IOBT, the Internet Battlefield of Things, um, where things do a lot of the fighting. Um, but also how these uh, trivergent technologies can protect and enable human soldiers with smart technology. Um, and you think about it, the, in their armor, in their radios, or their weapons, uh, other objects, uh, to give uh, troops a sort of situational understanding. But but it's like really crazy stuff that, that this technology is, is enabling. Sort of, we end up with this extra sensory perception because you have the physical world sensing all this stuff. Right. And fighters can have predictive powers. They can have better risk assessment. They can have sort of real time collaboration, but maybe even sort of shared uh, intuitions. So, um, for people who uh, weren't didn't attend the webinar, it's one of our uh, biggest ever. Um, uh, I would encourage you to uh, uh, go uh, check it out at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. Uh, it's a pretty interesting conversation. Sounds fascinating. Um, and there's lots of other good content that you can find there, including past episodes of What's on Tap. All right. <laughs> among, among other things. Do we have so to name them What Was on Tap? Yes. <laughs> we should maybe add a segment of on what's on tap called what's actually on tap, i.e. what is coming up in the future, yeah. which is what, what that expression means. What, <laughs> what, what will be on tap? It took us what, 10 episodes to figure that one out. Anyway, um, I think that concludes the discussion for today. Um, see you soon. I know that I will before our next what's on tap, but uh, we'll see everyone else next week. So long, everybody. Take care.